So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man. Hello to Chris, who's written in to say, I've been a listener from the start, but I'm a bit behind. I'm just catching up on series five when Alex talked about high-functioning autistics. This struck a chord with me, Ollie, as it described me pretty accurately. There was I thinking I just couldn't stand arseholes. Guess I should have figured that one out two marriages ago. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Um, (laughs) That made me laugh. Uh, And uh, thank you for the beers as well. Uh, Hello, MF as well, who says, Ollie, can I request you do a middle feature interview with a scientist, someone who stands out in their field, maybe Ronnie Russell or one of the scientists who did the Ebola trials, maybe a yeast developer for one of the breweries. Uh, All sound ideas. Thank you, MF. I will look into those um i i just think you will actually enjoy this week's show because my guest well he's he's not a scientist exactly um but he is an architect a world-class architect and that's a bit like artsy science isn't it uh, or as the old joke goes an engineer who can't do maths anyway it's geek paradise this week if you like factoids about mezzanine lifts then this is the episode for you. Uh, Before we get going, though, I just want to say, well, I'm not plugging anyone now because um, no one sponsored this episode. So why? Why aren't I plugging your business now? If you run a business and you like this podcast, then trust me, there'll be many other people listening to this podcast who would like your business. So if you would like me to promote your product or service, at the top of a future episode, then please do get in touch. People will love your brand even more when they know you support independent podcasts like this one. We've got 30 episodes to fill up next year. Uh, Fingers crossed. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, uh, or a series of episodes indeed, then do reach out at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback. Uh, Right, on this week's show, you will learn why Alex Fox has been barred from Facebook temporarily. Uh, You'll learn what honeymoon rhinitis is, and you'll learn what a right-branching sentence is, and why that wasn't one. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. The client thinks I'm adding three floors to the top, but actually what you're really doing is adding three floors to the bottom. Wind speeds, lift systems, and the journey of a poo. How tech helps us make better buildings. If you want to get in Hugh Grant's pants, that's the way to go. And how is nasal mucus possibly related to arousal? Alex Fox knows. But first, it's time for all the trends that you need to know about for the week ahead. It's the zeitgeist with a man who's feeling a little under the weather today, didums. It's Ollie Pitt. Don't talk to me like that. What are the big trends of the week? Gambling kids. There's this thing called LOL Surprise Dolls. They're basically a 10-quid doll. 
that comes wrapped in a sphere, like a, just think like a giant Kinder egg. But in between each layer of the paper is a clue as to what doll you're going to get. Okay, uh, is this genuinely like a, a trend for Christmas, like big kids toy or is there um is there a sting in the tail they've been going since april but yes they're anticipated to be a massive christmas hit but there's something slightly more sinister about the whole thing so excellent there are 45 different types of these dolls and you don't know which doll you're going to get and they're 10 quid a go so the kids are just going to keep going until they get them all basically it's gambling for kids I think I share with you an intrinsic revulsion at this general concept. However, with the Kinder Egg, as you suggest, you didn't know what you were going to get with that either, and that was making you eat something that ultimately could lead to type 2 diabetes. I mean, that's not better. It's just a thing kids are into now. It's no different to chocolate. It is very different, because the Kinder Egg's, what, 45p a go? You'd be hard-pushed to spend 450 quid on Kinder Eggs. There's like, there's 45 of these things, 10 quid a go, that's 450 quid. And it's like part of a bigger problem. There's uh, there's also these things, have you heard of loot boxes? I have. It's like an in-app gameplay thing, isn't it? Where you have to spend loads of money in a video game. Think of a virtual box that contains uh, like a randomised bit of additional content, but you pay for it. So it could be like a boost for a character, or it could be another thing that makes the gameplay easier for you or more entertaining for you. But the problem is, you spend a set amount of money, but you might get something that is a bit rubbish. And there's this huge problem that all of this kind of stuff's been marketed at, well, essentially kids. When I was at um, Comic-Con a few weeks ago, they had mystery bags. You didn't know what you were going to get, and they were, they were 50 quid, I think. Fuck. That's a lot of money to spend on maybe getting a slightly shit T-shirt and a packet of cards or something. What else have you got for us this week? Bat Boost. These researchers at uh, the University of Minnesota have been uh, conducting some amazing study on kids aged four to six. And what they were asked to do is perform a really boring task on a computer, but at any time they could just go off and play with an iPad that was in the room if they wanted to. And they did this in three different groups, right? They did. uh, There was group one who were asked to ask themselves while they were doing the task if they were doing a good job. Group two were asked if their peers were doing a good job. So like, is John doing a good job? Is Paul doing a good job? And group three were told that they could dress up as their favourite superhero character and they were asked to consider if they, as characters, were working hard. So in other words, is Batman working hard? All of the kids spent more time on the iPad than they did doing the actual task because... I mean, well, they're four to six years old. Certainly could have predicted that without the research. Yeah, of course. But the ones that dressed up performed considerably better. If you embody the persona of someone who is has positive traits, you're more likely to adopt those and start performing better. You can dress up as Batman and you'd be better at your job. But isn't it only to do with their perception of whether they're better at their job, which is different to whether they actually are? They all said they were doing better. That's not the same as actually performing better, is it? You know, it could make spreadsheets more entertaining for the average worker. We've got a productivity problem in this country, Ollie. I don't want to get political. But come on, let's all dress up as Batman and we can solve it. Right, it's time for the moment of the show where you let us know how you've been progressing in your task to become a true trends insider. Now, last week, Manfan John tasked you with the challenge of previewing as many... I don't think he specified actually a genre, did he? Just as many sort of uh, box sets and TV shows as you could and then reporting back, which actually sounded like a really fun way to 
past the time, especially when you're not feeling well. Uh, how's it been going? Uh, yeah, not not brilliantly. The logistics of actually get, getting yourself to uh, see these previews is quite tricky. I've contacted a few people to get like logins and stuff so that I yeah. can access the material before it's released. Did they say yes straight away? Did you say yes, I'm uh, from I, the Mod I, Man and they were like, oh yeah, that really cool podcast that all the kids Well, no, to. I had I had to uh, pull up other contacts to make it happen. Sorry. Did you? you? Know, this, Who? The podcast Who did you go through? The Guardian. You had to pretend you were working for The Guardian? I did once. Like, I mean, it's yeah, okay. I had to pretend I was working for The Guardian in order to get access. That was for Channel 4. So Channel 4, you got through The Guardian. Who else did you manage to approach? BBC. Had they heard of us? Well, no, because I got the login through our producer. Oh, Matt's got a login for the BBC anyway. I didn't need to even bother. Okay, this doesn't sound like you've really done a lot of hard hey, work listen, to be able to be able listen, to see the previews. I, the challenge was to watch stuff. It wasn't like for it to be an interesting story about how I could preview these things. What have you watched? Peaky Blinders. Well, that's on telly anyway. No, Peaky Blinders is on telly, right? But yeah. I have watched all of the episodes, including the last episode, which is going to be broadcast on the 22nd of December. I know how this series ends. Is the end of the series good? Sensational. Might it be mine, Jesse? At what? Your cause is now my cause. I want to help. The strike is holding. I want to meet the people who can take this further. Are you serious? Yeah. Is it the last one ever? Is it one of those shows that's ending because everyone involved in it is too expensive to keep making it? This is not a spoiler, but I doubt it. But I'm watching it before everybody else. I can't spoil it for anybody else. It's not like I can talk to people about it. I can't go, yeah. oh, did you see that? Have you seen this yet? I can't. And also, that last episode goes out on the 22nd. That's like, you know, just before the Christmas period. It's like brilliant Christmas time viewing. I should have been watching that whilst everybody's sort of getting like getting in their moods, sort of wrapping up at work. And I wasn't. I've missed that now. I've basically previewed essential Christmas viewing before the Christmas period. And actually, I feel like I've missed out. But millions of people would love that. They'd love to know whether Mickey Shitface got into a fight with Stanley Two Brows. You mean Arthur Shelby? Sure. The fact is, actually, you're probably going to have more fun watching it while everybody else is watching it. So don't just be patient and you'll enjoy it more. That is my advice to the world. What else have you seen? I watched uh, Vic and Bob's Big Night Out, which airs uh, on the 29th of December. So it's like a New Year's thing in between Christmas and New Year. I mean, again, I don't want to spoil it, but it's very funny. Do they smash each other in the face with saucepans? I'm guessing they do. It's just like it was back in the day. So it's exactly like shooting stars. They've obviously aged visually, but they have not changed one bit. Okay, good. All right. Um, This is all a bit British telly, though, isn't it? Uh, Presumably you've had a look around Amazon or Netflix and seen uh, what big box sets are coming up as well. No. I just think a lot of people are going to be thinking, oh, this is an opportunity to find out what the big box sets are that we'll be binging on. And you don't know the answer. You've missed the crown. That would have been perfect for this week. I want to know whether there's a big musical number or if uh, the Queen gets assassinated or anything. You've given me a D, then. What I'm going to do, I think, is extend this task by another week. I know it's unconventional, but I feel like there are other shows you could be telling us about that the rest of the world can see that you haven't. So could, can you find... There's a new series of Black Mirror. Tell us what that's like. You'd enjoy that. I'll try. I will. I, I, I will. I like, again, I put in the same level of enthusiasm as I no, do but, each No, it's not a question week. of enthusiasm. It's a question of writing to Netflix press office and saying, hello... I'm Ollie Pitt. I do a section on a show. Can you give me a password? That's it. It's nothing to do with enthusiasm. 
See, with Hello. writing words in an email. I am going to dress up as Batman, and I am going to write that email, and they are going to make sure that I get to watch Black Mirror. If you have a suggestion for a challenge for Ollie Pitt to fuck up, then go to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback. I'm not going to fuck it up. Hello, man fans. My name's Sam Leith. I'm a writer for the FT, the Evening Standard, among other publications, and the literary editor of The Spectator. And these are my top three Squarespace life hacks for how to write good. My first tip is best encapsulated in a quote I like to use, which is, when you go fishing, you bait the hook with what the fish likes, not with what you like. You need always to be thinking of your audience. Think not of the stuff that you know and want to get across, but of the stuff that the audience won't know and the audience needs to know. Think about what sort of language the audience speaks. Think about what sort of jokes they'll find funny, not what sort of jokes you find funny. Think above all of how you will connect with them. What are the common areas you have? What are the shared ideas, the images that will bring it to light for the audience? My second tip is to use what are sometimes called right-branching sentences. American linguists talk about something called right-branching and left-branching sentences. And what a right-branching sentence is one where the subject and verb are as close to each other and as close to the start of the sentence as possible, which is to say that all the modifiers, such as yesterday afternoon while I was sweeping the drive, I did X, You've got these modifiers piled up before you get to the main verb and the subject and the main verb. And your brain is always waiting for the subject and the verb to find out where it is. They're the kind of signposts. And so a right branching sentence is one where those come up early and they make it much easier on the reader cognitively. And if you look at thriller writers, you'll find that almost all of their sentences are in some way right branching. An example of an extreme left branching sentence, say, would be Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. You know, if you can keep your head when all about are losing theirs, and so on and so forth. It's only in the last couple of lines of the poem that you get the last line that you get to the words, then you'll be a man, my son. Um, it works well for poetry. It doesn't work well for direct communication in most formal environments. My final tip is try reading what you've written aloud to yourself. All of us have an ear for how language works. When you read, the sound centers of your brain are activated and you'll find that your sense of whether a sentence is right is greatly amplified if you read it aloud to yourself. And as the great American speechwriter Peggy Noonan has put it, where you falter, alter. Well, those are my life hacks. And for much more writing advice, do buy my book, Right to the Point, How to Be Clear, Correct and Persuasive on the Page, out now from Profile Books. Thanks to Sam for his Squarespace life hacks. Remember, you can share your own expert advice in minutes by building your blog with Squarespace, the finest web building platform known to mankind. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MAN, that's M-A-N-N, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Now, how tall do you like your buildings? The Jeddah Tower in Saudi Arabia, due to open in 2020, is going to be 3,045 foot tall. That's 322 foot taller than the world's current tallest building, Dubai's Burj Khalifa. And although most of us won't ever live in or work in a skyscraper or a super tall building, as most of their creators prefer to call them, 
increasing numbers of us are living in their shadows, literally, without knowing much about how they're designed or constructed. Fred Pilbrow has designed a number of projects in London, including Tidemill Square, a new public space in Greenwich, diagonally framed by tall buildings, and London's third tallest building, the Heron Tower. So I think the strongest single argument in terms of why tall buildings, I think relates back to sustainable urban design. That Effectively, we're to move away from reliance on private cars and we can use the public transportation infrastructure efficiently we've got to be exploring densification because you know london in the 30s was expanding outwards at a rate and consuming the green belt and and basically forcing people into long commutes to get from where they lived to where they worked I think we've now come to realise that that's bad from a whole number of different perspectives. I mean, certainly one of them is the time and the energy wasted by by commuting. I think unquestionably tall buildings do offer a strategy for increasing density and allows us to live and work more more intensely. We have to be very careful, though, as a building form because tall buildings have, if they're poorly designed, very adverse impacts on their context so potentially they can cause um, high wind speeds at their base i mean i guess center point was a good example of that at the end of the tottenham court road where it, it it trapped wind and brought it down to pavement level and people were getting kind of blown off their feet but what you previously had to do to understand what wind conditions would pertain around a tall building is you'd need to build a model and put it in a wind tunnel and it was extraordinarily complex to try and emulate that in the computer you just couldn't do it so you'd build a model and because that was expensive you would tend to do it quite late in the day you're about to submit for planning and you do the wind tunnel test and then if there's a problem it was like okay we'll put in a tree or we'll do a canopy or something now we can do all of that in the computer and do do it in the computer i mean just behind you on the table there's five coloured models there are five different versions of some tall buildings we're looking at in in london at the moment and each of those we've analyzed from a wind perspective and we discovered to our surprise that some of the approaches were really good and some were not and therefore we can make decisions as designers early days to steer it in a path that's not going to have those adverse impacts i think we also understand how people use buildings better and that's been particularly important in issues like vertical transportation. How do you design the lift sufficiently to move people through a building using the least space that you, you, you need to provide the, but, uh, the, the lift the, service? The design of lifts basically hasn't changed since the 1920s, has it? You can change the capsule and you can double them up, but they're basically carriages on ropes. Well, I, I was talking about the Heron Tower earlier, and that was a really interesting challenge because it was a relatively small floor plate and a 36-storey office. We have three floors of rooftop restaurant over the, the top of the office. But what was challenging for us is on a small site to move people efficiently between those 36 floors. Now, if you'd done it with conventional single-deck lifts, you needed two groups of eight. But on a small floor plate, that was going to take up too much site. You essentially ended up with very little office, and it was all core. So the first thing we did was look at double-deck lifts. Could you have the two cars essentially within the same shaft you enter them at ground and on a mezzanine and that gets better for example the eight shafts you now only need six so we've 12 in total a low-rise group serving up to 
level 19 and a high-rise group serving 20 up to, to 36. But wouldn't that mean that everyone who gets on at the mezzanine has to stop one floor above the floor that the people below them want to stop at? Well, the software is very key. In a conventional lift, you say, I want to go up. You go into the car and you push the floor you're going to. And at that point, the car knows where you want to go. There's been a development of what's called hall call software for lifts, where you say, in the lobby, I want to go to floor 14. And the software is looking for all of the other calls and they're saying, oh, it's a group of people who want to go to 14. Let's put them in card D. And so card D doesn't stop at random points. It whisks up to level 14. And if, for example, there are people going to 15 and 16, they'll be in the same car. So they have essentially an express ride up to the floors they want to get to, and it might stop three times, and then everyone's served and back down to the lobby. And if they change now, their mind halfway up and they want to get off at seven, Then they have tough. to get out, re-register <laughs> a call, and so you're right, for the uncertain, it's not a brilliant system. What turned out to be particularly powerful, and it hadn't been done before, was if you did hall call with double decks. And you might say, well, why is that? It actually talks to your issue that if you want to go to level 13 and I'm on the floor below, but I don't want to go to level 12, mm. the lifts stop. I start thinking, why is the lift off? And then it goes off again. And I'm thinking, this is really poor service. But of course, the software can collect together your desire to go to 13 with, let's say, mine to go to 12 and say, you two fit perfectly. So me up on the met scene and you on the ground floor <laughs> are sent to the right car. Now, that allowed us to switch from six lifts in a group down to five. And that meant the call was efficient, and therefore we got more office space, and the whole project made sense financially. I took my son and his class of uh, 11-year-olds to the tower when it's finished, and we have glass lifts. I should have mentioned that three of the lifts in each of the group are, are glazed. The, the kids scream so loudly. They go quite briskly. They're about seven and a half meters a second in the high-rise high group. They scream so loudly. We had complaints from the office users saying, what was that noise? But it is very dramatic because they're glass. And we, perhaps we shouldn't have done this, but we made the top of the lift car glass as well. So when you look up and you're going express up to the 36th floor, you approach at seven and a half meters a second the top of the lift shaft. And it is for the faint-hearted, slightly alarming. So we did do, in each of the two lift groups, we have a pair of non-scenic lifts, and you can register. If you don't like heights and you don't like glass, you can register to use those. So is that one of the other challenges, then, the speed that you're actually, presumably actually permitted to whiz people up a building? Provided the acceleration is well-engineered, the speed itself is, is not a problem. It, it, it's comfortable provided you accelerate and decelerate smoothly. We had a really interesting question, which is the, the scenic lifts had mullions to support the glass outside the lifts. And somebody said, but will the mullions flashing by as you go up the lifts create a strobe effect? Might that be uncomfortable for people using the lifts so i thought fine well we'll kind of we'll mock it up we'll do an animation of what it's like at the right speed and we'll do a camera and we'll show what that's like and as we did the animation we got kind of quite strong strobing so i thought oh shit this is like a disaster and then somebody said yeah but surely now you're just looking at the frame rate of the the animation software you know it's like when you sometimes see a car in a in a film and the wheel appears to be going backwards it's that effect so again in the end we sort of had to build the building to find out whether it would be a problem and it was fine um, and probably <laughs> didn't. <laughs> but it was quite an expensive question to ask but to return to my original question it is the case that it is still basically a carriage on ropes shouldn't we be looking at willy wonka style diagonal sideways lifts by now in any project there are some options that you research and then 
in the end elect not to pursue and one that we got very close to on heron was not to lock the two cars together but was to have two cars traveling independently within the same shaft now clearly they mustn't cross each other's journey or you'd have a crash but the logic being that you could you could send the the upper car off to do the high level zone and the lower car doing the lower ones and then they could agree and collect together we found the benefit in terms of the extra performance we got didn't make that worth doing had we gone say from five lifts in each of the groups to four and you think well that saves you what is that a couple of hundred square feet times 36 floors it might have been worth doing but in the end we didn't and the technology was not proven to do it can we talk about plumbing mm, I think what, so. what <laughs> well plumbing. if if i mean not to put too fine a point on it if i go for a dump on the 72nd floor yeah what happens to that fouling what what's different oh, god to i mean the i do of that I, right. turd <laughs> to if i right. was in a 10-story the building life, or a two-story the building. life of a poo um <laughs> <laughs> we've um just got planning for a, a building down in south keys which is 65 stories residential building with a, a hotel at the base and i know that the strategy sort of informed by plumbing and i think to, to, to your question about this uh this poo uh, was that we broke the building into basically three 20-story groups and we have plant floors and pressure point breaks at those third point intervals so i think that avoided us needing to kind of have massively reinforced waste pipes on that uh, on, on up the whole height of the building so effectively you you had break points for the for the pressure but it is a challenge <laughs> that dictates is it the shape of certain buildings i mean have it, i mean you have a lot of toilets in an office building don't you that goes you know half a mile up into the sky and of course with a very tall building the amount of floor plans given over to risers and what are you usually you're moving soil down you've got water supplies up you're probably supplying chilled water and hot water for cooling and heating uh, you might be moving air or you might be moving the, the air just horizontally onto each of the floors we talked about passenger lifts but you also have goods lifts and you would have arrangements for firefighting and means of escape so alternative means of escape in an office building and a firefighting lift either dedicated or shared with one of those other uses all of those things come together to make the core and as architects we're looking really closely at the efficiency of the floor plate that's the balance between the space that you can rent out and the space that you need in that core to serve it and it's definitely a challenge as you get taller of course you you need to have more of that riser space. And it's often said, I remember a conversation with a cost consultant where they were saying, oh, we might add three more floors to the building. And the client thinks I'm adding three floors to the top. But actually what you're really doing is adding three floors to the bottom because those extra spaces need to be supported and serviced all the way up through the building. And that gives you some sense of where the, where the break points are for the height and the efficiency. And in terms of I mean, getting permission, I mean, I can't imagine the process. You were talking about liaising with the council and so right. on. The footprint of a really tall building right. might be the same as the footprint of the building we're currently in, which is, what, yeah. four or five stories? Yeah. And yet it's going to use many multiples more of those local services, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The building needs to simultaneously do a number of things well. One is it's got to contribute to the street, its local setting, how it meets the ground, how it engages in that context... But at the same time, it's got to be a convincing response to long-distance views. It's prominent in a lot of views. And to start with that aspect, the planning legislation in London is very sophisticated, very developed, and there are 
a number of long distance views that you have to give consideration to so that that's informative of the form of building so for example the famous cheese grater graham sturk's building in the city of london the reason it tapers back is there's a particular protected view along fleet street where the city wanted an unobstructed view of st paul's cathedral dome and so graham slopes the building away in those particular views and it's a probably a 50 yards along fleet street where that view was protected and the whole building is a response to that viewpoint we work with does that strike you as slightly ridiculous well i think graham made architecture of that constraint and again this is probably a nice example of what i hope good tall building design might encompass because it's a constraint turned to opportunity because he was developing an office building and there would have been a concern that if you were trying to lease i guess he's got 50 floors 50 identical floors it was quite tricky because the market for space in the city was reasonably diversified in fact in the particular location on leadenhall he's in the insurance quarter and a number of insurers have taken space there he made the argument, and I think I think it was sustained in the in the leasing of the building, which was very successful. That if you could, ta- if you tapered the building, you had some larger floors at the bottom, which suited certain occupants, and you had some smaller floors at the top with you know a high proportion of perimeter space that suited others. So in a way, you were avoiding competing against your own market. You could offer something for everyone. You have to be careful with them as a building form done well they contribute positively to the public realm to the base of the building to the life and animation of the street and done well they can be beautiful pieces of architecture would you want to live in one yes i think it's an interesting question because i've got a young family and therefore that's one of the debates we have in terms of when i was a little younger without kids and and the need for space that would have suited me brilliantly. And for example, I would love to have been right in the middle of town rather than, you know, living out at the edge. Now I've got a young family and we have a tiny garden, a little kind of patch of garden. We use that very intensively. So that kind of works well for where we are in our current life stage. Um, I guess older and the kids leave. Uh, yeah, I would love to go back to uh, to to living in the centre of town. And but why is it all important that, that kids have a garden? It's not just, is it, that, you know, they get to spend some time playing with toys outdoors because those toys, theoretically, you could play with indoors. It's that they get fresh air. It's that they see things that aren't man-made. Yeah. It's that they encounter bees flying into their vision and flora and fauna. People who don't like tall buildings say, if we put up too many of these buildings, you lose that natural environment. I suppose it's about choice, isn't it, that what suits some people, because there is, at the moment in London, a real crisis of supply, and there's a shortage of housing, and there's a shortage of affordable housing, and I think what tall buildings can usefully do is contribute to supply, and they should contribute to choice so what will suit some people won't suit others and what will suit some people in certain stages of their life won't suit them later or earlier but i think it it would add to the the overall availability of supply interestingly i think you can design external amenity space as an integral part of a tall building a lot of the residential we do delivers either winter gardens or generous balcony areas and one of the good things i think in the london design codes is that you are mandated to provide some outside space for an apartment so if you take a two-bed apartment you need i think it's seven square meters of of outside balcony quite often in tall buildings we favor doing winter gardens because we think that that makes them usable year round you know in the winter probably because 
it's a bit blowier at high level. You you may not use a balcony as much at the time. And a winter garden means basically an indoor garden with nature. Yeah, it's got a it's it's typically got a single glazed outside screen, so the space isn't heated. It's not conditioned. In winter, it would be chillier, but it it's usable for more of the year. And actually, it's pretty fantastic if you get a beautiful balcony winter garden. The views, the sunsets are amazing. So actually, contact for nature could be different, but still really. Uh, really good do you think there's an issue with homogeneity not so much with the building's design which can be really beautiful and, and distinct against their own neighbors but in terms of i guess globalization you know there are parts of london which have been redeveloped now which i walk through and i think wow this is stunning i remember what it used to look like right. no one ever came here and now right. it's completely revived and there's loads of activity but it feels a bit like New York or it okay. feels a bit like Shanghai or it doesn't feel like London anymore. OK, but let me fit that on its head. I mean, what's, a, what's an archetypal Lon- London building? We could look at, I don't know, Inigo Jones's banqueting house, which itself is an Italianate design that Jones brings to London from his knowledge of Palladian Renaissance architecture. I don't see that necessarily as making it less about London. I think London has absorbed some new, perhaps rather quirky structures. I mean, I love that the London Eye, the Marks and Barfield and poor David Marks died recently, an incredible husband and wife team, having the chutzpah to promote the idea of doing this kind of Ferris wheel opposite the the most hallowed of hallowed, you know, opposite the, 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 the Houses of Parliament. And they were allowed to do it on a temporary permission. Lambeth said you can build it but you have to take it down in five years' time. It was built. And, of course, once it was there, it was an outstanding success. The idea you could have taken it down would have horrified people, but you couldn't have built it unless it was, it was quotes, temporary structure. So I think London absorbs these quirky buildings. And one of the buildings we love about London, like often they're mad as March hares. I mean, Tower Bridge, it's an insane piece of sort of weird Gothic architecture and high Victorian engineering. And these buildings, good or bad, are often commissioned in the boom times, but then completed in the bust times. Yeah. Well, it was said that tall buildings make money for the people who buy them from the receivers. And it is true <laughs> that, that they are quite slow. So what are the, the, the classic challenges around tall buildings are slower to grant consent, they're slower to build, and they cost more money because you need more structure, more services, more of those lifts and everything else. I guess the against that, you weigh that your land, your small plot of land gets used many times over. So the land cost is a fix, I guess, and then you get, as a owner, you get the benefit of the rent of times 40 rather than times five. So the question is whether it makes sense or not. I guess you're right, is, it is determined by the economic conditions. I think one of the difficulties, or certainly one of the arguments against tall buildings, is that because of those constraints, because they're more expensive and they're slower, is there a temptation to to dumb them down or to reduce the quality? Because particularly in adverse economic conditions, you're thinking, bloody hell, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can afford to do this anymore. And Well, this is what happened know, recently with the Garden Bridge, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I don't know if Big the Garden Bridge strikes plan. me as an analogy. I mean, you'll tell me, well, how do you see that? The Garden Bridge, you think, got more expensive or what whether or not it would have been that expensive anyway or whether yeah. it became more expensive because of the length of time it was taking or I incompetence see. or whatever it doesn't yeah. really matter because from the public point of view it became unacceptable as an amount of money right 
And that's to do with shifting economic climate, isn't it? It's okay. nothing to do with whether or not it's a good idea, really. Yes. And do you, do you get stuff promised at planning that then gets, what's the, what's the phrase, value engineered out? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's difficult to say that that isn't a conversation that, that takes place. I'm not defending it or denying it, but I think often, and this is an honest answer, that when we're asked to reconsider the cost of an element in one of our projects, we're often gloomy as hell about it. And then later we see opportunity and actually it forces you to say, what is the essence of your argument here? What's the most important thing? And could it be expressed more clearly and directly if you had to do, you had to do it with less money? That's, that's not an easy thing to admit to, but it does sometimes distill if you like, what the what the essence of an idea is. I think potentially the more interesting areas that we might get into and perhaps do get into with, with, with very large-scale buildings is whether you can accommodate a mix of different uses. And that, I think, is exciting. Obviously, Renzo researched that in the Shard where you've got a hotel at the top, which needed the... Well, you've got Resi at the very top, tiny floors, and then a hotel and then offices. And actually, there are some very interesting energy games that you can play there so that the... The offices we were talking about earlier are tending to be producers of, of heat. They need cooling. And so the, heat, the waste heat that they've got can be used by the residential. Very neat. Nice kind of balance of uses. In fact, I did the second phase for the Heron Tower and we had a hotel, Four Seasons Hotel and Residences, as it was when we, we got consent for it in oof, 2010, I think. We'd invested in this photovoltaic wall for the Heron Tower. And it was very expensive. It was good. It you know generated electricity, but the payback period was about twenty five years. So it was really poor value for money. When we did the hotel, we knew that the Heron Tower was producing waste heat, and we built a pipe underneath Houndsditch to link the two buildings. That was spectacular. Well, it wasn't spectacular physically or visibly. You can't see it. But the payback period was under two years. So essentially, heat that was being thrown away wasn't going to be used by the hotel and residences to, to heat them up. So that was very neat. And I think that sort of opportunity, maybe back to your super tall building, the opportunity to mix different uses together and to, to balance the different energy profiles of, of those uses could be very important for the future. And just doing a bit of future gazing finally, what is the thing that makes you the most excited to be working in this sector looking forward we've started a really interesting research project with imperial college to look at prefabrication or modern methods of manufacture for tall buildings because quite a lot of work's going on at the moment around how you prefabricate or how you offsite because there's a there's a number of forces shaping that debate one is a general skills shortage Brexit is going to make that worse. There's a need to reduce time and increase quality. And potentially, if you can build in a factory in, you know, controlled conditions, you can see you can get better conditions than on a wet, windy uh, building site. But to do it for tall buildings is quite difficult. And particularly if those tall buildings go beyond the limit at where the, the core which you typically would deliver traditionally, so it might be, I don't know, a slip-form concrete core, particularly if you go beyond the limit where the core can provide the stability. So we want to explore how you can do off-site manufacture for buildings of 30 and 40 floors. And what's great working with Imperial is we have all of their research expertise at our fingertips. So we're early days with it as a study, and there are a number of different 
uh, approaches that we're we're researching but that for me is very exciting and i think that will would you, would you drop it in how would you how would you put it in place if it's well i think the first question is 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 what do you mean by off-site manufacturer so is it a a, a panelized component and we do that a lot so the building in greenwich the the panels were were made off-site and delivered and installed to form the cladding is it a component let's say a bathroom pod or a kitchen that has a lot of in, intense servicing in it would need a lot of on-site labor can you deliver that as a as an element to the building or might it be volumetric where you take the entirety of a room and then you're into kind of what you can move by the road the size limits for that and, and how you crane it in the interesting problem we get is that those volumetric approaches are very efficient but they tend to be quite weak and that's to say in comparison with a, a you know a, a poured in place concrete framework they don't deal with sway forces particularly efficiently i was in new york recently and we were talking to thornton tomasetti who are engineers we know and like and they've been doing prefabrication at about 27 28 stories and they were saying one of the comfort criteria that, that they were looking at was let's say the building is moving in the wind for residential, you're really sensitive to that. You don't want that to feel uncomfortable. Now, you could stiffen the whole structure up, which means a lot more materials, a lot more cost. And for prefabrication, it's really difficult. Or you could look at tune mass dampers, which are usually associated with your mega buildings in the Far East, your kind of, you know, half kilometer high buildings where you have something which has got inertia and resists the building moving. Well, Thornton Tomasetti are looking at tiny tuned mass dampers within residential buildings so they can be comparatively light, but then they don't move uncomfortably in the wind. So those are the sort of techniques we want to bring to the UK and use on this uh, Imperial project. Fred Pilbrow. His practice is at pilbrowandpartners.com. Alex Fox is up next after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, well, from phallic symbols in the sky to, well, just phalluses, it's time for the foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ollie. How are you doing? I am outraged. Wow, okay, why? Well, I have fallen foul of Facebook's algorithms without actually having done anything foul at all. Oh, it's no, got you... me into a bit of a pickle. You haven't been breastfeeding, have you? No. <laughs> no. What have you been doing? I often use Facebook uh, to advertise for people that I want to interview for articles. Uh-huh. And I put a status up saying, hey, I'd love to speak to any men who've used Viagra. Uh, <sighs> I can pay you X number of pounds to compensate you for your time. Uh, Facebook's automated systems devised from the mention of money along with the mention of erectile dysfunction pills that Mm. I must be illegally selling little blue tablets and they barred me for 24 hours. I couldn't speak to anybody. I couldn't update statuses. And I'm a heavy social media user. You are? Yeah, so it put my world in a spin without even having committed a sin. 
are you selling Viagra, incidentally? I mean, I know that wasn't the purpose of the post, but, you know, if people just message you directly, is that something you can arrange? No, I'm not doing a back alley trade in downstairs pills. Shame. Uh, What else have you been up to this week? I've discovered the perils of incorrect grammar when designing sex toy boxes. Mm -hmm. I went to Love... Love Cunny. No. <laughs> <laughs> Love Cunny really should be a rip-off version. It should. For all those who do. Love Cunny. Uh, Love uh, Honey, I the sex to, toy people. Yes, mm. yes. Uh, I went to their big HQ, their, their massive uh, warehouse, and in there I spotted, boxed up, uh, a sex toy for women. That's it's sort of it's sort of like a partial sex doll. It's the torso and genitals and ass of a man. It's like a it's just like a model of a man's midsection, including erect penis. So you mm. just you straddle on there and uh, and ride it to your heart's content. It, they tried to call it the manufacturers had tried to call it. Fuck me silly, man. Uh, but they hadn't put the comma in, so it said, fuck me, silly man. <laughs> it's very British. In fact, maybe that's the demographic they're going for. Maybe, yeah, I'm sure. Um, the, there's a niche there, isn't there? Quite a sizable niche. Well, Four and a Funeral, consistently people's <laughs> favourite film. If you want to get in Hugh Grant's pants, that's the way to go. Time to take our listener sex question, which as ever has been sponsored by our friends at mycondom.com. Who sell fantastic pairs of Love Socks boxers, which are boxer shorts with a little pocket, especially for your condom. And we're not aware of any grammatical errors on the packaging for those. They do have two X's, so it's Love Socks, XX. It's a deliberate spelling mistake. That's cool, that's fine. It's stylish. The question this week comes from someone who has chosen to remain anonymous, who says, I am a lady who sneezes when aroused. It's always just twice in quick succession, and my husband doesn't mind and we've laughed about it, but in the meantime, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) You're laughing already. It's a serious issue, Alex. <laughs> okay, so we have someone who needs a hanky every time they feel like a bit of hanky-panky. <laughs> well, the good news is that this is a thing. This is a recognised thing. It's called... Sexually, sexually stimulated sneezing. Sexually induced sneezing. Is okay, wow, I wasn't even for it. far yeah. off with my yeah. medical No, you invention. weren't far off. Mm. It was noted as a phenomenon as early as 1897. Probably earlier than that, but no one would ever talk about it. It was officially <laughs> spoken about, yeah. <laughs> This sexy sneezing uh, by a chap called John Nolan Mackenzie before the British Medical Association at a meeting in Montreal. And then later uh, it was written about in the 1901 version of Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine, which is brilliantly written by Gould and Pyle, two doctors called Gould and Pyle. I really hope Pyle is a proctologist. So lots of people have been chatting about it, but no one really did an in-depth examination of what it was and why it might be happening, short of just saying it is a thing that happens. Mm. And until 2008. Oh, uh, when... um, they've got time at universities in this century for this kind of research, haven't they? Well, there's actually a, another excellently named uh, ear, nose and throat specialist called, and I'm so, I hope I'm saying this right, uh, Dr. Mahmood Butter. He interviewed lots of people who have this happen to them. Mm. Uh, in fact, one of them, it had led to the downfall of his marriage because he kept sneezing at dinner parties. So his wife cottoned on to the fact that he fancied people who, <gasps> who were in their friendship group. Yeah, and she it, she ended up ending the marriage over it. So What? I mean, why can't he just say he's got a cold? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I he might just a bad have a liar. sniffle. He might yeah. not want to sniffle around somebody's snuffly bits. So, but no, she decided that it meant that he was irrefutably attracted to her, ma- her female friends. And equally. 
I suppose it could work the other way, couldn't it? For this lady who's written in, it could be that her partner would know she's actually faking her arousal if she's not sneezing. Well, uh, Dr. Buta came up with two possible reasons why he thinks it might be happening. Uh, the first is that there is actually erectile tissue inside the nose. Fuck uh, off. Yeah, yeah, Why there would is. there be? It's just the way that the body is composed uh, that happens to be erectile and mucous membranes inside yeah, the Yeah, mucus nose. isn't a sexy thing, but erectile <laughs> tissue has no function in your nose, does it? Uh, this isn't something I suppose I've a snot into, is not but... all that different to an ejaculation, is it? So maybe there is a, a you know some sort of velocity helping liquid <laughs> process going on. Certainly, I believe that the systems responsible for uh, producing natural moisture in a woman's vagina and the systems that produce mucus in the nose are connected in some ways, or certainly they can be affected by the same drugs. Because I know that when people take uh, anti-inflammatories and antihistamines, uh, as well as drying up their nasal passages, which is the uh, required effect, uh, they can also lead to vaginal dryness. So th- there is a, there is a link between the two. Quite well, I why there's erectile tissue in the nose I'm not sure I suppose there's lots of reasons why the blood vessels in the nose would need to expand Uh, but one theory on why people might sneeze when they become aroused is that because their nasal passages are becoming engorged along with their genitalia uh, and thus stimulating the nose and and causing a sneeze as as an effect Uh, the second possible reason uh, goes way way back in time to one of the most fundamental atavistic parts of us as human beings which is the autonomic nervous system Um, this is part of the central nervous system that is responsible for all the automatic things that our body does to help keep us alive and keep us healthy without us thinking about them. So things like your heart rate, your breathing, uh, your pupils dilating to let in light or contracting if you're in too bright an environment. Part of that autonomic nervous system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system, is responsible for the various bodily effects that happen when you're aroused. Uh, For example, in gents, getting an erection in women um, a relaxation of the vaginal canal and the production of uh, jolly mucus good (laughs) sexy mucus because the brain and central nervous system are quite complicated it's really easy for uh, a nervous pathway to misfire so it's quite possible that in the case of our anonymous writer here every time she gets aroused those electrical impulses that are being sent to make all the right things happen in her private parts are accidentally triggering a sneeze reaction at the same time. Okay, so it could be, as you say, an accident, a misfiring, your body not behaving as it should, quote-unquote. But is this something that needs to be treated because i mean apart from getting found out at dinner parties for who you fancy what's what's the problem really of living with this condition of all the things in the world that you could get (laughs) this really isn't one of the worst of them sure i mean they could try decongestant some people have done that there's a there's a um... and just to be clear that's to be applied in your nose yeah don't put vicks anywhere near dicks please god (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there is uh, another linked phenomenon called uh, honeymoon ranitis which is when people shag a lot and get a blocked up nose again because of this potential link between erectile tissue and or the parasympathetic nervous system and and people have some people have to take things like tiger balm uh, to bed with them in order to de-stuff their nasal cavities after they've stuff their partner that's amazing so they could try some uh, decongestant if they wanted to 
if they wanted to embrace things and be a bit more positive about it, then they could actually make a feature of it. You mm. know, her partner could perhaps challenge her to see if she can stop herself sneezing and then, in a consensual, kinky way, mm. punish her for being a naughty girl mm. and sneezing and making a noise. Uh, well, when well, she was commanded not to. Uh, exactly. If she's being commanded not to, then there's a game possibly with tickling and feathers and smelling salts to make her sneeze as well. Smelling salts <laughs> to really take it back. I, to the, I think they're for bringing Victorian people origin. around after well, whatever, they've swooned. You know. They might be required afterwards if the session is particularly <laughs> banging. I love that you're giving it that Victorian flavour there. <laughs> Why not? Next up, chloroform. And what else? Um, well, there is something to be noted here if there are any gentlemen listening who uh, who have this happen to them, mm. who have sexual induced sneezing it has been reported as a side effect of the use of viagra don't write about it on facebook whatever you do (laughs) no no (laughs) Uh, if you take viagra or uh any any other kind of erectile dysfunction drug that has a similar medical makeup Mm. uh, then it can cause sneezing and or a stuffed up nose as as a side effect again because of all of the linked reasons that we've spoken about here so if you're popping little blue pills and then find that you need to um, pop a decongestant afterwards that might be why Well, thank you for that, Alex. An anonymous lady, I wish you many pleasurable sneezes to come. Uh, If you have a question of sex for Alex, what do you need to do with it? Whether you want to talk about a choose or sexual goose or any other kind of ooze that's going on in your bedroom, you can trot over to our website, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click on feedback. You don't have to give your name unless you want to. And in the run-up to Christmas, remember the stocking fillers section at mycondom.com. It has everything you need to get you off for the ho-ho holiday season. Yeah, if you feel like becoming a ho-ho-ho, then use the code FOXHOLE to get 15% off everything you buy. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time for me to read this text from Ollie Peart. He says, I was stopped in the street the other day by a listener and I said I'd mention them in the podcast, brackets, I was pissed. Could you make him ambassador for Under the Bridge at the South Bank? His name is Nick Abel-Smith. He loves the show, and he recognised my laugh, and it was good for my ego. Genuine text. Uh, it is an unconventional methodology, Nick, but uh, I now feel I have little option but to pronounce you ambassador for Under the South Bank. Congratulations. Uh, music now, and our theme continues to be by Django Django. Check them out online. And our record of the week is this, by brand new band Shrimp Eyes. It's their debut. It's called Katata Fish, and it's available to stream now on SoundCloud. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.